and welcome to the Library Talks podcast brought to you by Sutton Council's Cultural Services. I'm your host, Alfie, from the Cultural Services digital team. This week, I'm joined by Robert Heath, production controller at Pan Macmillan and managing editor of Imprint Magazine, which is part of the Young Publishers Association. I was really interested to get an insight into how publishing works, how the industry's changed and how it continues to change uh, and what the future looks like. In our chat, we covered the excitement of a visit to the library as a child, what a typical day at a large publisher looks like, and whether or not the doomsday predictions about the future of physical publishing may be premature. So without further ado, here is the Library Talks podcast with special guest Robert Heath. begin and did libraries feature in the development of that interest uh they definitely did yeah uh i probably started reading heavily as as a child from going to going to library in in lewis in east sussex where i grew up Mm -hmm. um i never really used the libraries at school very much but there was a public library in the town uh, which at the time was like quite dilapidated and run down there's a really nice new one now uh, but I would go there at least once a week and always take away a stack of books. Um, and even though I didn't necessarily read all of them, I, I found the whole experience really exciting. would always like always look forward to it as, as kind of the highlight of each week. Um, so I read a lot. I don't think it necessarily it's necessarily been something that was with me all of my life because I stopped reading probably between the ages of about 12 and 16. You had cooler um, things to be doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I, I rediscovered books as an adult and it's almost something separate from the way I used to love books as a child. But mm. at the same time, I don't think I would have become interested in books as an adult if it hadn't been for that. Um, it's obviously a very different way of reading how you read when you're a young child and then the sort of books that you start reading as an adult. Uh, but yeah, libraries were, were a big part of it. And uh, how would you say uh, in sort of generally your relationship with books and reading, how is it different in a library context as opposed to a private context or commercial, I guess, mm. as a as a reader? I think as as a child, it was it was exciting because you could read anything. And occasionally my parents would buy me books, but it was normally something that uh, I specifically requested or um, something they wanted me to read. But going to the library, I could read anything. I could pick up 10 books and take them home, and it didn't really matter what they were. Um, There were lots of books I picked up which I actually thought were rubbish. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one that really sticks in my mind that I remember reading probably aged about about 9 or 10 and I was a, a bit too old for this sort of book where I'd probably developed uh, kind of critical <laughs> critical thinking skills <laughs> yeah. and realised it was nonsense. It's some <laughs> book about a boy that plays computer computer games of uh, football and he's really obsessed with them and he's like a football mad, football mad 10-year-old. And I one day, I can already see where this is one day, And one day he wakes up and he's in he's wakes up in the body of... Uh, of right. his this this sort of imaginary football player who he'd created in the game called Laszlo, <laughs> uh, and he yeah he finds himself like a sort of fully grown thirty year old man who's like really really tall and hairy, uh, and he he goes down to his local football club and gets a trial, and then by the end of the book he's sort of the most famous footballer in the country, uh, but he's really missing his mum. Yeah, so he ma- I can't remember exactly how it resolves, but he ends up going back to his childhood self. Okay, I'm, I'm, having learned a lesson. I was going to say, I wouldn't, <laughs> he's just now a fully grown man. No, he yeah. has no business living with his parents anymore. No, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't sort of lose his childhood no, and everyone dear to him. There's a whole, uh, I assume, thriving industry uh, just of books about um, kids becoming football stars, yeah. either through some sort of body swap hijinks or uh, there's a there are player short in the cup mm. final and they get pulled out of the stands. It's kind of a uh, I feel like that's been a quite an archetypal story for like 
just forever since football existed, probably, or at least since professional football existed. It's still, yeah, definitely. it's still really, uh, really um, thriving, despite very much playing to the gallery. Yeah, it's the sort of thing you would read in like comic books as a child yeah, as well. Yeah, I had a lot, a lot of those sorts of books uh, of like some, yeah, some football mad kid uh, ends up like taking taking his local football team all the way to the FA Cup or something, or they, yeah. be, they become they become the best school in the in the county. <laughs> um, so when you uh, realised that you'd been had a misspent teenage years when you'd uh, stopped reading. Uh, and you came back around to uh, sort of books and literature. Was publishing, has it always been something that you've been sort of keen to get involved in or did it just sort of happen by accident? How did you end up doing that? I think like a lot of people in publishing, I didn't really realise that it was a career you could do until quite late, um, particularly because from the outside, I think a lot of people just see the jobs in publishing as being an editor you know, if somebody works with an author and you get their book published, but there is obviously a lot, a lot more to it than that. There are a lot more different jobs you can do, which unless you know someone already who works in publishing or unless you dig into it a bit, you might not really realize what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it definitely wasn't something I was considering as a teenager or even, even whilst I was at university, it was only afterwards um, when I started thinking, what do I actually want to do? And spoke to some people who worked in in publishing or in magazines and newspapers that I realized there are lots of jobs you can do. Um, it's not completely inaccessible. It can seem like it from the outside, particularly because a lot of the a lot of the more visible roles in publishing are very dominated by um, very posh people. Right. Um, still to this day, I mean, it's, it's changed a lot. And the company I work for is not really like that. Um, I think maybe some smaller publishers still are, and I've had experiences at, in internships and things like that where I've been very aware of the the type of social groups that go into publishing because it's not a it's not a traditionally very well paid industry. Mm-hmm. So it tends to attract people who've got other means, right? People who can, who can afford to not be paid very much. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think as well, that was something that no no one ever said to me, oh, you know, you should work in publishing because you can, it's interesting and you'll earn loads of money. I mean, it, it's interesting, but no one's ever going to sell it to you on the basis of it being a really well-paid career. Right. Um, so for me, it was something I only ended up doing purely through through reading a lot, through talking to a couple of people and making the choice that, okay, I don't, I don't really know what sort of career this is going to give me or how well paid it's going to be, but I haven't found anything else I want to do, so mm-hmm. I should give this a try because okay. at least it will be involved with something I do, I do like doing. Right. So Pan Macmillan, mm-hmm. uh, who you work for, are part of one of the largest um, English language publishers yep. around. So obviously the the range of people that you've worked with as a company has been pretty broad. Mm. Um, was there any in particular that you were especially kind of excited to get involved with? And are there any that you've had much um, direct contact with? Uh, so when, when I first applied for my first role at Pan Macmillan, the, the main thing that appealed to me was obviously that the name it is one of the more well-known publishing companies. Uh, historically, it's it's been one of the big English language publishers mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, the company is over 175 years old, so is older than a lot of the other big publishers like Penguin, for example. And because of that, uh, there's a very rich history of lots of famous authors over those 175 years been published there. Um, in terms of what what attracted me about the company now, there's a particular imprint within Pan Macmillan called Picador, uh-huh. uh, which publishes a lot of really interesting fiction and non-fiction. Yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of books that I'd read on there. There are a lot of authors I was very excited about. Uh, there's an author we've just published her new book called Hanya Yanagihara. Mm-hmm. Um, she published a book a few years ago called A Little Life, which is... Uh, 
often gets compared to the author Donna Tartt. Yeah. It's like a portrait of a, a group of friends over several years, over their early and mid-adulthood, and often kind of quite tragic things that happen to them. Yeah. Um, so when I applied for the job at Pan Macmillan, that book had just been published, and so that was a very immediate sign to me that this would be a good place to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my first role in the company was working as a receptionist, right. so I ended up meeting uh, a lot of our authors. Everyone walking into the building. Pretty much, yeah, and uh, got a pretty good idea of uh, what what these people were like yeah. beyond their public image. I'm not, not going to name and shame anyone. I was going to say, are, without saying, I'm sure there are certain people where you thought, that's not the way you act on television. <laughs> precisely, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, for, for every author who is maybe a bit snooty, there are 10 who are, who are lovely and um, who are just really excited to be publishing a book. And yeah. uh, even if it's something they've done for years, uh, still amazed that there's a whole team of people who right. who are working 40 hours a week to to take their idea and, and yeah. turn it into reality. Um, there's a, a children's author called Rod Campbell oh, um, yeah. who published the the book Dear Zoo mm-hmm. and he's published a lot of other books since then. That came out in the 80s uh, and he he was always lovely. He he comes in all the time. He you know makes an effort to get to know everyone in the company and he's just, despite being, I mean, he must be late 70s, possibly even 80s, he's so enthusiastic about writing new books and uh, just seeing children read his books. I know that from my time working directly in libraries that he's Mm. still very popular. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't point out that uh, Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life is available to be borrowed from most (laughs) Saturn libraries. Um, If any authors who uh, kind of, I know, you know, a lot of them have a lot of things going on, but Mm. maybe some who have kind of, establish themselves and all they're doing is the book that they're currently releasing once they've kind of handed it over to the publisher there's probably a lot of waiting around for them do you ever have anyone who who would just sort of turn up and just check in see what's going on or was it all very structured uh so it's not really my area of experience so uh, i don't work in the editorial department but i i'm sure that um that that's something the editors have to deal with a lot because Yeah, there is a, I think something which is tricky for a lot of authors is accepting that once you sign a deal with a publisher or even once you find a literary agent who's going to represent you to publishers, the book ceases to be entirely yours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And even if your agent or your editor isn't going to change it dramatically, um, you're going to lose control of the process a bit. It's going to be read by a lot of people who are going to have comments on it. Um, your your editor will give you advice about, you know, what you could do with the story or how you could restructure the book. Mm-hmm. But then it will also be um, copy edited, someone going through it line by line yeah. and saying, you shouldn't have written it like this. It doesn't really make sense. This is what you could have done better. Uh, you've got all of these errors here. Here are these factual errors. Right which I can imagine is quite a brutal process yeah, for authors. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm sure there are some authors who really, they want to be very involved in every step of that process yeah. and don't want anything happening that they're not completely involved with. And I know from, from talking to colleagues uh, who work in a design department, mm. for example, who I work quite closely with in my role, there are some authors who, who want to be fully involved in, uh, how their book's going to look, what's, what the book cover is going to be. Right. They want to go to every meeting. They want to see every draft. Uh, they want power of veto over everything. They, I mean, they do have power of veto, but... Oh, they do? I'm quite um, surprised by that, to be honest. Yeah, if, the, if they really hate something, you know, uh, it won't get published. Right. But uh, there, there are those who are much more willing to just give it up and say, I've written a book, but you know designing a book cover is not something i know about yeah <laughs> i'm not i'm not someone who understands how marketing or publicity works i'm gonna let someone else take over and mm-hmm. wor- work out how to sell this book who who to market it to yeah uh, how we're going to pitch it to to the public and to the press that's probably a skill you'd have to learn if you're a published writer just letting go of stuff that you've written and yeah saying, this, definitely this will change 
Um, and there's not a huge amount I can do about it ultimately. Um, so what is a standard day, if there is such a thing, at a large publisher like? Is it, as I imagine, um, just people constantly running and bursting into meeting rooms, shouting deadlines at each other while paper <laughs> flies through the air in the background? Uh, or is it a bit more relaxed than that? Or is it somewhere in between the two? I'd, I'd say somewhere in between <laughs> the two, yeah. Uh, it, it definitely depends on the department and on the role. Um, and like you say, at a larger publisher, it's, it's probably quite different to a smaller publisher. From from the experience I've had doing internships at smaller places mm. and from speaking to friends who, who work there, I think those sorts of publishers tend to be a lot more chaotic um, because there are... There, there aren't as many people doing essentially the same number of roles. So yeah. if you if you work in one department, you probably actually end up doing a lot of the job of another department. Sure. Um, and at a bigger publisher uh, like Pan Macmillan, everything is very meticulously planned. We have a, a publishing schedule that goes years into the future. Mm. Um, there are people within the company whose job it is just to kind of keep on top of the the process of publishing a book to make sure that all the dates in the process have been met even if their job isn't actually doing any of those particular steps oh wow okay just literally saying so this is supposed to have been done by now has it been done exactly you know there's a big uh data and analytics program to mm-hmm. to look at the way we work and make sure it's as efficient as it can be so there's definitely uh elements of what you might picture in your head when you imagine a publisher and uh, like you say, you know, people running around, thrusting manuscripts in people's faces and saying, I need you to read this by tomorrow. You know, this is the, this is the new Harry Potter. This is how I imagine it. And we'll continue to imagine it regardless of what you say now. Um, But yeah, (laughs) uh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you're part of a sort of larger machine Mm. kind of um, something's gone badly wrong, if you are kind of, that up against yeah it, precisely um but you are also um as well as uh, your work with pam mcmillan you're also the editor at imprint magazine uh, and that's part of the society of young publishers is that right yeah that's right so what is the society of young publishers what are they what are they about and what do they do it's a organization for um as the name suggests young people who work in publishing uh, but it's really, it's anyone who's in their first 10 years of a publishing career. So you don't have to be young to be a member. It's it's an organization which supports people as they begin their career in publishing. Right. Um, it's It's been around for about 75 years. Uh, so it's got a long history and its role has probably changed a bit over the course of that time, particularly as publishing has become a much bigger industry um, and has expanded to include a lot more things than than it used to uh it's it's not really a a union but it's also more than just uh, a social organization so it's really there to to give people guidance to to give give people a professional network um if if people are starting out in the industry it's a way of them to build up contacts who are going to become useful later in their career to, to meet people who work for other publishers, um, to get to know people who do different things in the industry and just improve our understanding of how it works. Uh, but it is also, it is a social thing. For me, I first joined because I was interested in meeting people from other, other, other companies, other parts of the industry. Um, we organize a lot of events, uh, both as the part of the national organization of the society of young publishers and then within all the different regional branches so there are six different branches in the uk and ireland okay and they will do events they will put on conferences um they will have committees where they organize things locally and just yeah give people an opportunity to get to know other people in publishing where they live so is the is imprint the kind of house magazine or is it a project that they've kind of what they're working on or is yeah so it's the in-house magazine and so because of because of being uh kind of a newsletter as well as a magazine for for the society of young publishers it serves quite a few purposes 
so it's there to report on what the society is doing, but it's also just there as a platform to contribute to the discourse in the publishing industry and give give the perspective of of younger younger people in publishing, um, which is is often missing from a lot of the the trade magazines that exist for the industry or is missing from uh, literary magazines. So it's it's uh, it's it's an opportunity for people to to write about things they care about and to get some experience working on a magazine and uh, as a in a more journalistic capacity. Uh, but it's it's yeah it's there to to tell the rest of the publishing industry to what young publishers think right uh, and kind of give people an insight into where where publishing is going. So how did you end up? Well, I suppose how did you get involved in it, and then how do you end up becoming its editor? Is that something? Is it like a fixed term rotating job, or um, are you kind of concentrating your grip on power as we speak? Uh, so it is a rotating position. So it's one year, uh, and there will be a completely different editorial team each year. Okay. I started about two and a half years ago. I started doing some editing for the magazine. Um, I was. I was interested in getting some experience doing freelance editing as a kind of outside supplement to my day job. So I started doing some editing on the magazine, mostly proofreading, copy mm-hmm. editing. Uh, through that, I ended up writing a couple of articles. Then last year, I became one of the editors who who contributes to each issue and edits the other articles within it. And then this year, uh, I thought I would take on the managing editor role. So uh, basically overseeing how the magazine is run and picking an idea for each issue and uh, getting the editorial team and contributors to to write about whatever issue I've chosen. So is everyone there, um, that sort of, sort of voluntary thing, and the rest of the team that's currently on it with you, is that, are they people in a sort of similar position to you, similar roles in their kind of day jobs, I suppose? Yeah, so it's entirely voluntary. Um, part of the appeal of it is it gives people a chance to get some work experience that they might not have in their job. And there are a couple of people on my team who don't currently work in publishing but want to work in publishing. So for them, uh, it's been an opportunity to basically get some work experience that they can put on their CV and say, look, I've been involved in this project Um you know, I can do practical things like meeting deadlines and yeah. managing responsibilities, but it also shows my enthusiasm for publishing uh, and for books. So how how do you balance doing that with your kind of day-to-day, I guess? Is it something that you're able to do as part of your job or is it something you have to do in your spare time? Uh, definitely spare time. Mm. Um, it's been probably easier this year than it would have been in another year because of COVID, um, because of the the lockdown which we had at the start of the year when I took over the magazine. I had a lot of free time, mm. had a lot of evenings at home, so I could I could get all of the kind of admin that I needed to do done. Uh, it's been more challenging since things have gone a bit more back to normal, and I've had had a social life again and yeah. and other commitments. Um, but it is obviously symbiotic with my job in yeah. that uh, I learn a lot of things I need to learn uh, from my job, which helped with the magazine. So purely in terms of actually making the magazine, my job working book production taught me how to use the programs I need to use to uh, design and typeset a magazine, taught me. Uh, about the different processes and materials for printing the magazine, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't have known about otherwise. But it's also it also gives me access to what's going on in publishing, and I can I can lean on colleagues uh, if we've got an article about something in particular. I can say, "Oh, you're an expert in this. Mm-hmm. Can you can you talk to us for the magazine about this topic within the industry?" <clears throat> um. And with that kind of uh, insider knowledge, I suppose, what uh, do you see as the major issues facing the industry today and what would be your strategy overcoming them if you were able to direct strategy, I Mm. suppose? 
the issue which everyone in publishing worries about the most is uh, the other forms of entertainment and media that are competing for people's attention. Um, and although book sales have been pretty strong over the last few years and publishing is a growing part of the economy, you know, most publishers are making more money every year. The amount of time people spend reading is going down. COVID has disrupted that a bit, but particularly amongst younger people, people read less than they mm -hmm. used to do. Um, the demographics which publishers would really like to get their claws into, younger people are reading a lot less than they did 20, 30, 40 years ago because there, there are more things that compete for their attention now. You know, there's video games, there's, uh, there's television. There are all sorts of things which young people have easy access to now, um, which they didn't in the past. And I mean, even from our own experiences, I think about when I was a child and, you know, there are only four channels on the television and I didn't have a games console. I didn't have the internet. I spent a lot of time reading in my free time because yeah. that was one of the few things that you could do. But now there's there's so much that you can be doing other than reading a book. And if you don't get people when they're young and get them in the habit of reading, then it's not necessarily something they're going to develop when they're older. So I think that's the thing that publishers worry about the most and can often lead publishers to try and try and change what they're actually selling people there's often a lot of talk in publishing about oh you know people like people like doing stuff on their phones therefore we should make the experience of reading more like playing a game on your phone right and all these all these things go around kind of in in circles periodically every few years there's a sort of a fad for something like augmented reality you know where you if you look at the book through your phone screen, uh, an animation will appear on your screen. So you could be reading a children's book about a dragon. And if you hold your phone or iPad over the page, suddenly there'll be a dragon on the page. Right, okay. And this sort of thing, publishers love this sort of thing, but it never really seems to go anywhere. Um, and you see it with, with e-books and all kinds of uh, devices like Kindles. And the new one is audiobooks, which publishers are going crazy for. And there are, have obviously has been a big rise in the number of people who listen to audiobooks and the number of people who who read ebooks. Um, and I don't think publishers should should not pursue all of those channels, but there's definitely a tendency to to treat each new thing that comes along like that as being the future of the industry when really it's it's just it's just people's habits changing, but they will eventually coalesce into something a bit more solid. So about 10, 15 years ago, everyone was crazy about ebooks, And yeah. they thought that people honestly thought that people wouldn't read paper books in the future. By now. By now, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, people looked at the the figures of who was reading ebooks and extrapolated from that that books would go extinct. Um you know, oh, last year there were 5% of readers reading on a Kindle. Now it's 10%. Next year it's going to be 15%. Therefore, in 2020, uh, there'll be no one reading books left, yeah. um, which is obviously wrong. But I think people looked at things like uh, music industry or even lots of print media like newspapers and had kind of terrifying vision of what was going to happen, you know, in... In 2003, the smart people in the music industry realized that in 10 years' time, no one apart from people over the age of 50 would buy CDs, for example. Um, so people in publishing thought exactly the same thing was going to happen and that they needed to redirect all their energy on uh, just publishing ebooks or publishing something digital. So fortunately, that's, that's not happened. Uh, and actually, most people find a balance. They find what works for them. So I occasionally listen to audiobooks. I never read ebooks because I spend enough time looking at screen anyway. But other people do like to read ebooks, but it doesn't mean they also don't read paper books. It doesn't mean they don't read 
uh, they don't listen to audiobooks as well. Yeah, I've always, I mean, as an outsider, obviously not working in the industry. Um, and I've seen, you've seen it across all industries, like you mentioned with music as well. Um, I've always thought it was kind of um, maybe slightly short-sighted when there's a panic about, oh, well, this things, this new technology has mm. come along, so we're all doomed. Um, and obviously, no, you know, they don't want to be complacent and just sort of sleepwalk into oblivion. But um, there's so many kind of historical precedents for the new technology coming along and not not destroying the old one. Mm. Um, whether that's because things can coexist and people can, you know, have uh, varied tastes that encompass all of the different things, whether it's because the arrival of new technology makes some people kind of really double down on what has come before. I always think it's a bit of a shame. It's a bit of a kind of, um, uh, I don't know what the term would be, but kind of just panicking at the first sign of trouble sort of when industries like, uh, like the sort of print industry go fully into like, well, let's, we're going to be digital mm. now. Cause I mean, you mentioned music, but you look at, um, vinyl sales kind of, coming back to the point of being the dominant physical musical media and obviously not many people could have predicted that but i think books have never gone away in the same way that vinyl did go away in the first place and if you speak to anyone who reads books uh which is you know still a lot of people the thing they love about it is the physical kind of tactile nature of it and i feel like a lot of the stuff that the industry understandably brings in to try and interest new people actually ends up kind of alienating the people that make up the kind of backbone of that industry, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I, I think sometimes people lose sight of why certain types of media or technologies have disappeared. You know, print newspapers, barely anyone reads them now. The majority of people that read them are people that it's just a habit. They've always got a daily paper. But for... For you or I, someone of our generation, you know, someone who's not bought a newspaper every day from, I don't know, their 18th birthday onwards. Yeah. Because that's just not something that most people do these days. It doesn't really offer good value to buy a newspaper, particularly if it costs £3, like a lot of them do now. Um, whereas a book, for example, you know, you can get paperback for 7 or £8. And it's something that you will spend hours reading. If it's a good book, you'll probably return to it. And that makes it worth having. Whereas a daily newspaper that you're going to read in one sitting and then literally throw in the bin or a CD single, which costs you, I don't know, five pounds, but then is only actually three minutes long. It doesn't really offer good value and you can see why you can see why someone who doesn't have deep pockets of money to burn is gonna ditch that if there's an alternative which is better value. But I think I think the strength of books is that they are actually pretty good value and they do offer you something that you you will return to, you know, how many books do you have which you've had for a decade or more and which you're not gonna throw away because you because you know it will offer you value in the future. Yeah, I think the fact that a new new books by certain authors are still events that do kind of permeate wider culture, less so than they maybe mm. used to, but it still happens. I think that's probably a sign. That's not a sign of a kind of industry on its knees, I don't think. Maybe, I suppose, as someone from a sort of independent publisher might disagree, but if you're in an environment where new novels by certain writers can still make that mm. impact. There is still it's clearly a market for it, an appetite for it. Um, and as an aside, when you mentioned CD singles, that's got to be the least economic piece of media ever made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the in, like the plastic CD case, uh, which is, you know, a centimetre thick and has to go on your shelf. A full CD to contain one song and probably two remixes. On, and I just, yeah, that was never... Never something that I fell in love with as the the CD mm. single, but yeah, it's. Um, and I remember even by the time it became really widespread in the nineties, 
you could listen to MP3s by then. It yeah. was something that was clearly going to disappear fairly soon. Yeah, and you can I feel like you can really love a kind of seven inch single and uh uh I don't know for various reasons, and I suppose some people wouldn't wouldn't agree with that, but like there's something yeah, you can really sort of cherish it, but I don't think I've ever mm. known someone to really love maybe they love the music on it, but I don't know if anyone's ever really loved the the object that is a mm. C D single. But maybe that's just me. Um you may have kind of touched on it in your last in the last sort of question and maybe even talking about the demographic of the industry earlier on but would you say there is uh, any particular area that the industry could improve on or could uh, sort of approach in a better way uh, than what it is now that's a tricky question there obviously uh, lots of things publishing could do better both in terms of the quality of the books that are published and um who those books are published for. I mean, I, I think in the last few years in particular, publishing's undergone a bit of a revolution in terms of realising that the the profile of a lot of the people who works in publishing is not representative of the country that we live in and that the books that publishers subsequently publish don't, don't appeal to everyone. Um... You know, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that is changing in the industry and publishers are making efforts to to actually kind of get to know who's reading their books more and more um, and make sure that the, the companies, are, you know, that they hire diversely, that it's not a kind of... A, old boys club where yeah. people just uh get their get their friends children jobs it's a lot more transparent than it used to be um one of one of the issues has been pay transparency which even five years ago there was very little of and now is is basically standard across nearly all publishers and any publisher that isn't transparent about how much they pay will get quite a lot of flack for it um, on social media at least uh, it was pretty typical a few years ago for uh, salaries not to be advertised at all on publishing jobs Oh wow! <laughs> um, which obviously means that the only people that apply are people who either they already know quite a bit about publishing and they know what to expect they or, know what the salary will be or it doesn't matter what it or, is yeah, yeah exactly it doesn't matter for them um and but by being more transparent, it's meant that a lot of publishers have actually had to increase their salaries, yeah, yeah. particularly for ju- junior levels, because there was a reason they weren't transparent to begin with. Exactly. Now it's now it's very obvious. Uh, you know, if if you're a publisher which is offering a starting salary which is well below uh, the average average salary. Mm-hmm. And yet you're asking the people to apply to be extremely well educated with loads of experience, um, really passionate and dedicated to to working with books. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. Those people are going to are going to go and work in other industries. And I think publishing as an industry has realised that there is a kind of brain drain that's been happening. That people people who were really committed and enthusiastic and intelligent and talented were working in in other areas because uh because publishing wasn't rewarding them for for their for their skills and their hard work so that that's probably been like the main change in the last few years that that's made publishing better uh is obviously it's not a job which has been finished and publishers have got a lot more to do in terms of uh, making the industry more accessible, um, making sure it's well remunerated and, and all the rest of it. But it, it feels like things are going in the right direction now. Okay. Um, so moving on to our traditional uh, final section of the show, uh, I've asked you to 
come prepared with three uh, Desert Island books. Yeah. Um, anything that's kind of meant something to you at uh, various points in your life and, and any reasons why they've made the cut. So uh, do you want to take us through your first choice? Yeah, so I've picked uh, a book from a different stage of my life for each choice, um, starting with childhood when I was <coughs> going to libraries all the time. You've understood the, the assignment there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't remember if this book is one that I I took from a library or whether I just I just owned it. Uh, it's possible I read it for the first time in a library and then was so mad about it that my parents bought me a copy. Uh, but it's a book, I don't know if you've read it, called The, the Giant Jam Sandwich. <laughs> Uh, I don't think I have read the Giant Jam Sandwich. Um, it sounds it sounds fantastic. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a British book. It's probably I think it was published in the seventies, um, so it's not new, but it's not it's not like a sort of classic. But it was it was a classic in my household. Uh, it's just about a, <laughs> a town which decides to make um, an enormous jam sandwich because they've got a problem with. Um, with wasps okay. so their idea is that we can drive the wasps from the town by making this huge jam sandwich which all the wasps will be attracted to uh and then we'll sort of squash them all in the sandwich <laughs> <laughs> and i mean it's not it's not a book i could say uh had any profound impact on me no <laughs> you know there there are books you read as a child which maybe do shape you morally or introduce you to ideas uh that you hadn't encountered before or broaden your horizons and help you develop your sense of empathy but uh i don't know when i was thinking about the, the books that were important to me as a child or at least the books that were memorable that one really stuck out as something which something which i definitely read for pleasure something that i read again and again um and I think partly as well I chose it. The, the other two books I've chosen are quite serious and um, are books which definitely have had an impact on me and my sort of moral education or how yeah. I see the world. But uh, yeah. that's not the only thing that books are for. And Absolutely. I, maybe as an adult, we, we tend to read uh, in a more serious way than we do as children. Uh, or at least, at least I do. I find myself looking for a message that I can take from a book and then if there isn't one maybe sometimes I'm a bit too dismissive of it I don't I don't tend to read a huge amount of what would be called page turners where you are just reading for the thrill of it um which sometimes I think I ought to because I I will listen to music which I don't think think is particularly meaningful but I enjoy or I will watch films which don't contain any big lesson in them mm. uh you know, I watch, I watch for pleasure and entertainment and I don't do that enough with books. Um, but as a child, I definitely did. And, uh, I've always found this book hilarious. And, you know, every time I think about it as an adult, it still makes me laugh. I don't think it was just some kind of, uh, silly juvenile thing. I think it had a kind of absurdity to it. Which... Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I, it, it made me laugh. <laughs> I feel like, um, stuff that sort of thing yeah when you're a child it's just funny because it's silly mm. but you don't have any sense of like absurdist humor or absurdism is actually like a kind of you know it's a sort of valid mm. comedic um style which you will come to appreciate as an adult f for different reasons um but no that sounds sounds like it fits the bill definitely exactly there were things there were things as a child which entertain you uh which definitely are just silly Mm. And are not going to be funny to an adult, but there are also also things which, as a child, you just you you find them funny because they're they're weird or they're they're so unlike everyday life. Which even as a child, you realise it's very kind of structured and uh, regimented. Um, and this book in particular, what always made me laugh as a child and now as an adult, I understand it even more is that uh, you know when when the town decides to build this giant jam sandwich it's really like a it's like a project which loads of people get involved with it's very it's very bureaucratic um despite being something as absurd as making an enormous sandwich 
it's treated as though it's like a, a project that uh, local government and businesses are undertaking to, <laughs> to solve a problem uh, afflicting the town. So um, that is, I'm pleased to say, uh, available in Sutton Central Library in the children's section. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Um, so if anyone wants to uh, find out the fate of the, the townspeople of itching down uh, <laughs> after a menacing swarm of wasps, friends uh, <laughs> to completely overrun uh, run their town. Um, well, it's a tough act to follow, but what is your second choice? My second choice is a book called Midnight's Children, uh, which I'm I'm sure will also be available in Sutton Libraries. <laughs> it's a very very popular book in this country, um, partly because it's often included on the syllabus of um, GCSE and A level English literature courses. It's it's from the 1980s, I think, early 80s, and is by the author Salman Rushdie. Okay, and it's a magical realist novel, so it's set in the real world and it depicts historical events but it's also a world in which magic happens um and this this was a genre of of literature that i found really enjoyable uh, at the time when i read midnight's children which was as a teenager studying for my uh, a levels in english literature because i think at that age at least I was really curious about the world and I wanted to learn a lot about the world. I wanted to learn about history and uh, politics and kind of big, big ideas and themes that you don't think about when you're a child. But when you become an adult, uh, you, you become aware of how little you know about the world um, and how there are all these sort of huge events that have happened which you you had no knowledge of previously. Uh, but it's also because it's magical, it it makes it a lot less dry than reading a history book. Um, and f- through the magical or sort of fantastical elements of it, uh, there can be metaphors for things which have happened historically which maybe uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be obvious to you mm-hmm. as a reader so in in this book it's it's a kind of family saga telling the story of a of a family before and after partition in india so when uh india and pakistan gained their independence from the british empire and it specifically its narrator um is a boy who is born on the stroke of midnight on the day that partition happens and him and all of the other children across india and pakistan that are born at that time uh they have this sort of magical ability to communicate tele telepathically as well as each having different magical abilities and so through the main character being able to communicate telepathically with all of these other children you get uh you get a kind of tapestry of everything that's happening in the course of history following partition as we see all these different children's lives and the events that they're affected by. So uh, the East Pakistan War where uh, the country Bangladesh, Mm -hmm. which was known as East Pakistan, gained its independence. We see that from the perspective of one of these children. Um, The main character organises a kind of conference where he gets all of these different children together and tries to tries to get them to collectively solve all the country's problems, uh, but it inevitably descends into kind of conflict, just like was happening in the country and just like happens all over the world mm-hmm. when, you know, people people of different backgrounds and people with different interests uh, get together. That's a brilliant uh, concept, I think. Um, I mean, even the thing of someone being born the moment that their country is born, I guess, uh, is quite interesting. And then there being a link between, uh, between those people. Uh, I'd like to read that myself. Um, I think it's stuff like that is a great way of kind of introducing you to kind of, uh, history and world events as well. Uh, if you think of something like, uh, the machine gunners by 
Was it Michael Morpurgo, the machine gunner? I've, I've not read it. I don't know it very well. It's basically a bunch of uh, lads during the Battle of Britain or uh, kids um, who... Uh, there's a ger- there's a German pilot shot down where they live and there's... Um, I, think, I can't remember exactly what happens in it, but uh, I think they get hold of the machine gun from his plane mm. and I th- they, they kind of make contact with this pilot. But I just remember being so fascinated by the world that was being described... Um, without any real kind of engagement with the historical reality at, at that point. But stories like that eventually sort of bringing you to a point where you are interested enough and invested mm. enough that you're kind of, you want to learn more about the actual historical events. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great kind of uh, gateway, I suppose, for young people to get into history, which they all should. Um, so your final choice. Uh, my final choice is um, a book by a Japanese author called Yukio Mishima, who uh, was writing in the 20th century. Um, he died quite young, unfortunately. What was the title uh, of that one, sorry? Uh, it's called Spring Snow, and it's the first of a, um, a four-part series, which is all notionally about the same character, although the character who is in each of the four books is not the main character in every book. Mm-hmm. Um, and in each of the different books, uh, what Mishima does is look at a different part of life, essentially. So this book, Spring Snow, is all about youth and later books kind of look at uh, becoming middle-aged, aging, uh, people looking back on their life, the, the different struggles at different points in life. Uh, and I found this first book, I mean, I love the whole series, but this first one, it was the first one I read. And I suppose I read it when I was fairly close in age to some of the characters in the book, which is why it had such a, a big impact on me. But I, I think particularly it had a big impact because it was one of the first books I read as an adult where... I was actually older than the protagonists in it and I was I was kind of looking back knowingly at the things which mm. happened to the characters and thinking yeah that is that is very true to life that is what you know that is what it feels like to uh, be a confused teenager who's got lots of passions or lots of things pulling them in different directions who who doesn't really know what type of person they are or they want to be who's kind of caught between different worlds um and i don't think i'd had that with a book before i think most of the books i'd read that that were powerful for me were books where it was it was an opportunity to learn about part of life which i hadn't experienced which is obviously a a really important part of reading fiction in particular is that you you know, you get to live other lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be a 20-year-old who's had a sort of very comfortable existence and you can read a book about someone who's uh, 70 years old and living in poverty and having a particular struggle. Or, you know, you could be you can be 60 years old and you can read a book about someone who's going through something as a teenager which you didn't experience and which really broadens your perspective as to like what other people have lived and how other people are coming at coming at life uh but this this book is all about um it's all about a young man who he falls in love with uh a girl who is from a kind of different social social class to him even though they're both members of the elite in japanese society it's it's set in the early 20th century um he comes from a kind of new money family and uh, this girl comes from a family which is very aristocratic, very powerful historically, has a very high status in society, but uh, is, is kind of losing its place in society and has no money and is getting uh, getting caught up in the massive transformation that was happening in Japan, mm-hmm. as was happening in, in most societies around the world where the old aristocracy was becoming uh, increasingly irrelevant and the old kind of social norms that 
dominated society, both in terms of who had what role in society, but in terms of how people conducted themselves, all of that was starting to crumble. Yeah. Um, and it's set at a moment where the characters are, they're young people in a world which is, is kind of falling apart and they're aware that there's a new society being born, but they're still governed by the rules of this old society. Mm -hmm. And so this, this couple can't be together because, for example, uh, the girl is going to have an arranged marriage with someone who's seen as being more uh, of her social standing. And despite the fact that they're, the characters seem like young people that, you know, could have been me or you, it could have been, could have been anyone that's grown up in, in the 20th or 21st century. Uh, they're still in a world which is completely governed by like ancient customs yeah. and expectations about how people are supposed to behave, uh, which, although that's not really something relatable, I found the characters and the experiences they're having, the kind of the way they relate to their own lives, the emotions that they're going through are things that I just found kind of shockingly realistic. Yeah. I feel like that that's the interesting thing you could read the same book at sort of three different points in your life and uh complete identify with something completely in three different completely different ways mm. or the the character that you kind of attach yourself to could be completely different or you may even kind of have a completely different interpretation of the same thing that you did uh when you read it sort of younger and it's all very i think maybe more possibly more than any other medium kind of literature is one that what you bring to it probably influences how mm. you, what you take from it um more than any other I, I think it's probably probably fair to say yeah i would agree with that i think because there just is a lot more room for interpretation with a book than say a film because mm. in a film you're you're not just you know listening to the dialogue but you're being shown images yeah um the way that it's shot encourages you to to see it in a particular way, to, to understand the events that are happening in a particular way. You know, there's music, which is giving you an emotional cue. It's telling you, mm. oh, uh, this is what's happening in this scene. This is how you're supposed to feel about it. But with a book, obviously, you are being led in a particular way. But you can also, like you say, you can you can read it in two completely different ways. And maybe there there is subtext that you don't pick up the first time you read something. Uh, maybe there is there isn't even that subtext there, but because of what you've lived, you see this 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 event which is happening in the book as being, uh, oh, maybe this is like this is like a tragic event, even though the characters in it don't realise it. But you, having lived something similar, you realise that something really sad is happening. Mm. I suppose it's the you can't really be a passive spectator when reading. No, I mean. You sh not that you should be when you're, for example, watching a film. Um, and there are a lot of films that are made specifically to challenge you into not being mm. uh, a passive spectator. But it's possible to be one, definitely. Whereas I feel like if you're reading a book properly, um, it's kind of impossible. You can't really do it. Um, the only way you could do it is if you have that thing when you're reading a book and you realise five pages into you haven't remembered a single word yeah. and you have to go back and do it again. So yeah, I guess that that means you're gonna kind of um, project on it uh, more so than maybe uh, a film typically. Um, remind me of the title of that last one again. Uh, it's called Spring Snow by Yukio Mishima. Yeah, very interesting character, and the subject of a song by the Stranglers. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Death and Night and Blood, Yukio by the Stranglers. We, um, we we could get into his fate, but I'm not sure it's yeah. uh, <laughs> particularly appropriate for for this podcast. No. Um, Probably not, nor, nor, nor the, the sort of uh, things that led him to that particular moment yeah. in his life. Uh, and that's probably uh, as good a place as any to leave it. So, um, Robert Heath, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. It's always, always nice to have a, have a platform to just talk about, talk about books I like and <laughs> complain about things I don't like about, about my job.
there we have it. Thank you to Robert for coming on the podcast and giving us a fascinating peek behind the curtain there. Thank you for listening wherever you are. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Sutton Libraries on Twitter and at Sutton Libraries London on Facebook and Instagram. Please leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen if you can. And we'll see you next week for another chat with another special guest. Until then, keep reading.